0: I was told by a mentor some 20 years ago that I should make it my goal not to be the smartest person in the room. Mission accomplished. Uh, nevertheless, there are certain things in life that just make sense to me. There are certain things that I look at and I go, well, that, you know, that, that seems to make sense to me. You don't have to be the smartest person in the world to figure these things out. For instance, if you uh, want to uh, figure out a way to fix a broken process, whether it's something in your own life or perhaps it is at your workplace, all you need to do is ask Chick fil A. Right? They figured it out, they figured everything out. If you want things to run better, just ask them. Uh, if, for instance, you want to expedite a long line or improve customer service or you want to improve upon Uh, people's general happiness at work, all you have to do is study the DMV, notice what they do, and then do the opposite. (laughs) That's that's true. Uh, I have also come to realize in life if a friend, family member, spouse, or loved one says to you, oh, this smells terrible, smell it. Or, oh, this tastes terrible, taste it. Don't. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Common sense makes the most sense. Common sense makes the most sense. You know what isn't common sense? Do you know what on the surface level doesn't seem to make the most sense? Uh, The words of Jesus when he says, If you love your life, you will lose your life. If you hate your life, you will gain life. I read that and I think to myself, wait, what? That seems to be the opposite of oftentimes what we think. It seems to fly in the face of common sense. And yet this is the invitation that Jesus gives to his followers in John chapter 12. It is the invitation that he gives to you and to me this morning. Uh, We oftentimes say at Christ's point that we exist uh, to point people to Jesus We exist to point people to Jesus. That is our heartbeat. It is why we are here. We are here for Jesus and because of Jesus. We want to follow Jesus wherever he leads us. And uh, it is important for us to remember that following Jesus is unspeakably hard at times and it is breathtakingly rewarding. It is totally rewarding. Worth it. Uh, Because we exist to point people to Jesus, I want to make three observations this morning about Jesus uh, from our text. Uh, Number one, I want us to see that Jesus brought with him great expectations. Jesus brought with him great expectations. Uh, Number two, Jesus promised great difficulty. Jesus promised great difficulty. And number three, Jesus offers a great reward. I'm laughing a little bit as I read these, not because they're funny, but because I turned the heat on this morning in the barn, and and the heat is directly flying in my face, and I feel like I'm standing on the face of the sun. And so, like, I just want you to know, in like three to five minutes, if you look up and you're like, James is sweating even more today than he normally is, um, just know that it's my fault. Matt has gone to turn off the heat. Bless you, Matt, wherever you are. Uh, Number one, Jesus brought great expectations. Jesus brought uh, great expectations. Our text this morning uh, is often referred to as the triumphal entry. It is a a common passage that oftentimes we tackle the week before Easter, and yet uh, here we are on the cusp of thanksgiving. It says in John chapter 12, verse 12, the next day the large crowd that had come So you can imagine the scene, a crowd had gathered. We're told uh, from the text that it was a large crowd. They took palm branches and they went out to meet Jesus and they shouted, Hosanna. Hosanna means save or save us. Uh, we see this scene recorded in Psalm 118. Some roughly 100 years before this event, a Judas Maccabees drove out the Greeks he uh, was a political hero some one hundred years before Jesus uh, showed up onto the scene. Palm branches were significant or were symbolic of the crowd 's political aspirations. Uh, palm branches were a symbol on the coin of the second uh, Maccabean revolt. Waving branches was a sign of a nationalistic spirit. Uh, think. Uh, of numerous people, a large crowd waving their country's flag. Uh, a little history lesson actually helps us understand what is taking place here. Uh, I love the article that I read a couple weeks ago uh, from the website Got Questions. By the way, if you have a Bible question, if you have an historical question about Scripture, um, oftentimes I'll go to this website, Got Questions, because I think they do a good job just kind of painting a big picture of whatever question uh, you might have about history uh, or specifically about Scripture. Um, About 68% of what I share with you in the next minute and a half is from them, in case you're wondering. So when the Old Testament closes... Uh, The people of Israel had returned from the Babylonian exile. You may remember that at one time God's kingdom was united uh, throughout uh, David and Solomon's rule. After Solomon died, the united kingdom became the divided kingdom, north and south. The Assyrians and the Babylonians come in and defeat God's people. They basically send them out into exile. Um, Here, uh, during the time when this uh, was written, rebuilding had had begun. Under Nehemiah, you may remember in the Old Testament, uh, the wall around Israel was rebuilt. Ezra begins to call God's people back to devotion of God. Uh, The temple was also rebuilt, even though many people looked at the new temple and thought to themselves, this is a little disappointing compared to the old temple. Uh, In the time of Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, the temple is functioning again and sacrifices are being made, but people are not giving God uh, their best. Instead, they're offering uh, what are blemished animals or blemished sacrifices. Uh, Between Malachi, the end of the Old Testament, and when Jesus arrives, recorded in the New Testament, there are about 400 years that pass. Um, These are oftentimes referred to as the silent years. He's 400 years. Other people refer to this time as the intertestamental period uh, because it covers the period between uh, the Old Testament writing and the New Testament writing. Uh, Are you guys tracking with me so far? I know three of you love history, so you're digging this. Uh, the, the The Old Testament closes roughly around 400 B.C. Alexander the Great all but conquers the known civilized world, and he died in like 323 B.C., his empire is then distributed to his generals who consolidate their territory and their dynasties. Ptolemy, uh, uh, Tule- uh, as, as, I think that's how you say his name. Ptolemy, one of his generals ruled in Egypt. Uh, uh, Seleucid, another general, ruled over the territory that included Syria. These were two of the main players. And if you look at a map, they, have been, they have essentially uh, surround God's people. They surround uh, Israel. Uh, one ruler was somewhat favorable to the Jewish people in terms of allowing them to essentially practice uh, their religion, but Seleucid uh, was not, and his dynasty was the one that essentially uh, took control of that area, and they began to sort of put an end to the practices of the Jewish people. In 175 BC, the Seleucid king uh, uh, Antichus IV came to power, and he chose uh, for himself, a title that means God manifest. So apparently, he was not the most humble man in town. Uh, he began to persecute the Jews in earnest. He outlawed a Jewish practices, including certain food laws, and he ordered the worship of Zeus. His ultimate act of desecration was to sacrifice a pig to Zeus in the temple in Jerusalem in 167 B.C., Needless uh, to say, um, this was not received well uh, by the Jewish people. Uh, Matthias, a Jewish priest, led an organized resistance along with his five sons. One of his sons was Judas Maccabees. Um, He uh, became a nationalistic hero Uh, in the eyes of the Jewish people. He was essentially a type of Moses or a Gideon-like figure uh, who rallied the people uh, to attempt to defeat the oppressors. Uh, In the time of Jesus, people um, had great political expectations. Uh, They still were under uh, the ruling thumb of of the Romans. Uh, If a foreign ruler, uh, ruled over you, uh, if their presence was felt in everything that you did, uh, if you felt like you were under their watchful eye, uh, more than likely you would have a desire to be free. I mean, you you would come together in family uh, meetings or festivals or parties and think to yourself, if we could just get rid of of our foreign oppressors. This is what people wanted. This is what they desired. Uh, What the Jewish people longed for, what they longed for, was a political savior to come and rescue them. This is what they wanted when Jesus showed up onto the scene. So understand the Jewish people's heart's desire. They, They want political Freedom. They want political freedom. They wanted Jesus to provide it. They, they wanted him to be essentially a political leader or someone uh, to be a political leader who would defeat Rome and free the people. Now, we may hear that and think to ourselves, that's not our situation. That was thousands of years ago, right? We, for the most part, experience a great deal of freedom in our country. I mean, I mean, sure, we have a political desires and political opinions and political parties. But for the most part, we do not feel a constant a sense of oppression uh, as we walk through daily life. Um, that was not the case uh, for the Jewish people. Even though we may not experience that or feel that, uh, we certainly have our own desires. There are times when we want Jesus or a savior to be something or someone for us. Maybe we want a political savior, someone who will help elect our preferred official Maybe we want a relationship or a marriage savior, someone who will come and fix what is broken. Maybe it is a financial savior that we desire or a physical savior, someone who will fix our broken bodies. We want Jesus oftentimes to be our fixer. We want him to come alongside of us and be some combination of Tony Robbins and Dave Ramsey or Dr. Phil. Uh, But Jesus was and is uh, far uh, from that kind of fixer. Uh, Jesus came offering a different kind of kingdom. People longed for someone who would come and change their outward reality. Jesus came uh, to change the human heart. If hearing that, makes little sense to you this morning, Uh, don't worry. (laughs) It didn't initially make sense uh, to followers of Christ either. We're told in John chapter 12, verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. They didn't get it. They didn't connect all the dots. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that they are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The disciples, Jesus' closest followers, uh, did not understand what Jesus uh, was doing until after he was raised from the dead. Then they fully started to connect the dots and think to themselves, okay, uh, now we get it. However, we uh, have the great privilege of living on the other side of the resurrection, Uh, We know the story. We can uh, connect the dots uh, to God's good and perfect world. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The Pharisees see that their greatest fear is becoming a reality. They were so worried uh, that they were losing the crowd, and they were. The world was starting to go after uh, Jesus. Scripture continues in verse 20. Now among those who went to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethesda and Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Uh, Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus brought with him great expectations. Some people wanted him to be a great uh, political leader, other people uh, wanted him to go away, and still other people uh, followed him, people you would not expect, namely the Greeks. Right? Jesus was not just for the Jewish people alone. He wasn't for the Jewish people alone. Pastor Kent Hughes notes that the presence of Greeks at the Passover was not unusual. Greeks, he writes, were characteristically seekers after truth. It was not unusual for a Greek to go through philosophy after philosophy in his search. The force of the Greek, the language here behind we wish to see Jesus, is continuous. The idea is that they kept repeating their requests. They really, really, really wanted to hear and see Jesus. Again, Jesus wasn't just for Uh, the jews he wasn't then and he isn't now jesus is for those who repent and trust in him no one particular group of people have a corner on jesus john wanted us to see uh, that gentiles were included in the events of jesus's incarnation and sacrifice In the opening chapters of Matthew's Gospels, we read that wise men from the east came to see Jesus. And here in John, shortly before the cross, we see wise men from the west coming to see Jesus. Gentiles, in other words, framed both sides of Jesus's life and ministry. With the presentation of the king and his triumphal entry and then the pursuit of him, we can imagine how shocking the following words were from Jesus. Remember, the people expect or long for or want Jesus to be a political savior. And then Jesus utters these words, the hour has come for the son of man uh, to be glorified. Many people likely remember Daniel's words about the one who would come and set up a worldwide dominion uh, that would never end. Surely, Christ was about to announce his campaign against the Romans and initiate his kingdom, or so they thought. How disappointing his following words must have been to them. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Uh, Jesus brought with him great expectations, and Jesus also promised great difficulty. Jesus promised uh, great difficulty for those who would follow after him. You can imagine how shocking these words must have been uh, for the people. Jesus, when he talks about a grain of wheat that falls into the earth and dies, was of course referring primarily uh, to himself. And this flies in the face of common sense. I mean, think about it. How does Jesus decide to advance his kingdom? How does Jesus bring those who are far from God near to God? How does Jesus decide to win over rebel hearts? How does Jesus run down and chase after those who are fleeing from him? How does Jesus win over his enemies? those who seek to kill him? How does Jesus capture the human heart? Jesus does these things by dying. Jesus came to die. I mean, I I read this and I try to think to myself, I try to imagine uh, what the creative team meeting would have been like in heaven as the Trinity is figuring out how they are going to rescue and save the world. I I try to imagine God the Father going, I've got an idea. And the Son and the Spirit going, hey, there are no bad ideas. Just throw it out there. Best idea wins. I've got an idea, Jesus. You die. Now listen, there are no creative team meetings in heaven. The God of the universe doesn't have to figure anything out. But I'll just be honest with you. That idea, the surface level, doesn't make a lot of sense. Unless God gives you eyes to see. That was God's plan. That was God's idea. That that Jesus would be the grain of wheat that falls into the earth and dies and then bears much fruit. Jesus, of course, was referring to himself uh, and and he was referring to the path of his followers. Theologian D.A. Carson writes, like the seed whose death is the germination of life for a great crop, So Jesus' death uh, generates a plentiful harvest. The seed is thereby vindicated and the son is thereby glorified. But if the principle modeled by the seed, that death is the necessary condition for the uh, the generation of life, is particularly applicable to Jesus, in a slightly different way it is properly applied to all of Jesus' followers. The movement of thought in this passage runs from Jesus' uniquely fruitful death, the death of one seed producing many living seeds, to the mandated death of Jesus' followers is the necessary condition of their own life. In other words, uh, the invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to lay down your life. The invitation to experience life with God is an invitation to die. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Again, that doesn't strike me as common sense. It it can come across as an upside down invitation, an invitation to follow Jesus. If you love this life, if you love this life, if you think to yourself, This is as good as it gets. This is not a bad deal. How can I orchestrate my life in such a way where I can experience this life forever? Jesus said, if you love your life, you will lose it. But whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Uh, It is safe to say that following Jesus is difficult. Um, The call to die is not an easy call. If you are looking for the path of least resistance, you will not find it with Jesus. If you are here and you are seeking the so-called good life, uh, where Jesus comes and makes your life easy and fixes everything uh, that is broken, you will be incredibly disappointed. Now, don't get me wrong. Um, there, there is joy in following Jesus. Um, dying to self does not mean that we are not allowed to smile. It does not mean that Jesus is the fun police. Uh, looking to pull us over and sap any joy that we may experience. Uh, We, as the people of God, are joy-filled people. We know, after all, how the story ends. Uh, We are a people who celebrate the new life that God has given to us in Christ. All of those things are true. But, or and, uh, Jesus did not gather his disciples and say to them, Hey, uh, everything is down downhill from here. <laughs> Wind at your back. You only live once, boys. You do you. Follow your heart. God wants you to be happy. If there's anything I can do uh, to help you, please let me know. Uh, Jesus did not have that conversation. Matthew 7:14. the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Those who find it are few. It is hard to die. It is hard to hate your life in this world. It is hard to take up your cross and follow Jesus. It is difficult uh, to play the role of a servant in a world that thirsts for power and longs position. That that is not easy. It is not easy to walk the narrow, hard road. Following Jesus and serving Jesus, I think about that, the idea of dying to self. And one of the first questions I ask is, what does that even look like? What does it look like? What does it look like to die to self and instead, uh, spend your days uh, serving others and serving God. I mean, if we were to paint a picture, um, what would it look like for you and uh, for me? So I thought about that this week. I thought about what are, what are pictures that I see, maybe from our church family or from others, of what does it look like uh, to die to self and to follow Jesus? These are just a handful of things that came to mind. On Friday night, a group of our men, after what I'm sure were long and busy weeks at work, decided to spend their Friday night here messing around with cables and making sure that our lights and our sound works without any hiccups. I ran a cable from here over to the kids' cabin, uh, so our babies and toddlers could hear and see me preach on Sunday morning. What a what a gift to those little kids and to the volunteers. I can think of a few other things that most people would rather do on Friday night. You're tired, right? I mean, it's it's easier to go home and veg out. It's not easy to show up. In a small sort of way, I think that, that's what it looks like to die uh, to self. I thought of a group of adults who signed up uh, to not sleep for two nights in an uncomfortable bed uh, and smell smells that no human being should have to smell Uh, so that 30 of our students can have the opportunity uh, to hear and to grow in the gospel. Listen, the reality is 60 to 70% of those who went are going to get sick, more than likely. Uh, They're going to be tired on Monday morning uh, when they wake up. And something tells me they wouldn't trade it for the world. That's dying to self. I thought of a man who is using his lifetime of experience in building an architecture to look at creative solutions for us to have a permanent place to meet when our lease is up in 18 months instead of doing what most people would do at his age, which is coast into his twilight years and enjoy a lifetime of fruitful labor. Instead... Uh, He is pouring over and praying over ideas for our church family to be able to meet uh, so long after he is with uh, the Lord, God's people would be able to gather and worship the God of the universe. That is dying uh, to self. I think of a a wife uh, who is fulfilling her wedding vows uh, to love her husband in sickness uh, and in health. And just doing that so beautifully and so well. I think of another woman who uh, confesses her desire uh, to offer shade to her family by being a full-time caregiver and loving her husband and the kids that God blessed her with, just loving them well. That is good and beautiful. I think of a man who has been hurt by foolish and frivolous words of others who commits to lean in and extend forgiveness uh, even when it is hard and likely uh, not deserved. I think of a team of people who have worked for the last year uh, preparing our church family for next Sunday uh, when we will pack over 30,000 items into 1,100 shoeboxes to be sent around the world. Those boxes are not simply filled with trinkets and toys. uh, They are armed with the gospel. Uh, Somewhere between 7,700 and 11,000 people will be directly impacted by those 1,100 boxes. When I think of what it looks like to die to self and to serve others in God, I think of those in countless other examples. Well done, church family. God is pleased and Christ is honored. Yes, uh, there are times in life uh, when uh, dying for Christ may actually mean dying for Christ. But oftentimes, and I might even argue more often than not, it looks like dying a thousand little deaths every day as we commit to serve and follow Jesus. And that can be hard. There's, there's no way around it. Following Jesus is hard. If you are looking for an easy life, do not follow Jesus. Jesus brought great expectations. Jesus promised great difficulty, but Jesus also offered a great reward. Jesus offered a great uh, reward. Whoever loses his life or whoever loves his life loses it Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father uh, will honor him. Uh, Yes, the Christian life is hard. It is difficult, but it is also glorious. It is also glorious. Nothing beats it. I mean, nothing beats it. The glory of Jesus' promises far surpasses the difficulty of it all. In fact, the glory uh, turns the difficulty into the most significant life imaginable. It is the best life uh, that you can live, bar none. Verse 24 says, The seed must die. Yes, that is true. But also notice that it says, If it dies, it bears much fruit. What joy is there to spend your days bearing fruit, being used by God to encourage others and challenge others and grow others. Yes, verse 25 says, he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to eternal life. What we lay down for Christ. Uh, He will put in our hands again with glory. As one author said, you cannot out-sacrifice his resurrection generosity. Yes, as the people of God, we will follow uh, Jesus to Calvary. But what is the outcome? Jesus tells us, where I am, there shall my servant also be. Jesus said to his followers, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am there you also uh, will be. If we follow Jesus to Calvary, we will be with him in glory. The second part of verse 26 uh, tells us that we will become his servants. But what does the father do to or for his servants? It says, if anyone serves me, the father will honor him. I mean, just think about that. You spend your days serving God and his people. And when you stand before the Lord, he lifts up your chin and he honors you. That is crazy. He is God. He's the God of the universe. And he looks at his sons and daughters who served his sons and daughters and served him and says, well done. Yes, following Jesus means that we die a thousand deaths. It means that we hate our lives in this world. It means that we follow Jesus on the road to Calvary. It does mean that we become uh, servants. And, And it also means that we as the people of God will bear much fruit. It means that we keep our lives for all of eternity. It means that we join Jesus where he is in glory. And it means that the Father honors us. I was told by a mentor 20 years ago that you should make it your life goal not to be the smartest man in the room. As I said before, if you haven't figured it out yet, mission accomplished. Uh, Nevertheless, there are certain things in life that just make sense to me. And a life bearing fruit with the promise of eternal life where we join Jesus in glory and receive honor from the God of the universe, that makes sense to me. And it is my hope and prayer that it would make sense to you today. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Would you pray with me? God, what an amazing truth. What an incredible invitation Uh, to think, Lord, that we have been uh, invited by the God of the universe uh, to follow after you. Despite the difficulties and the challenges and the hardship, Lord, you You promised us glory, and we give you thanks for that truth today. God, thank you so much for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for the hope that is ours in Christ. God, we love you. We give you thanks. We pray these things in Jesus' name and by your spirit. Amen.